Hi, I'm Liv Bolton, and this is The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire people wanting to make adventures outdoors a bigger part of their life. Today's guest is Ross Boyer. He's a survival and bushcraft course leader who's also a safety consultant for TV shows, including The Island with Bear Grylls. He's been to so many incredibly wild, remote places around the world with his work and on expeditions, including Alaska, the Brazilian rainforest, islands off Panama and the Arctic Circle. I went up to visit him at his home in Kendall in the Lake District, and what was brilliant was seeing how many mementos from his work and travels he had placed around his house. But these weren't just your average pieces of travel memorabilia. We're talking a jaw of a moose that he found while in the wilderness in Canada, a huge axe on his mantelpiece, and a homemade fishing spear. He's such an awesome guy and has so many great stories. So let's get to the interview. Listen out for the three people Ross says have inspired his outdoors career, his tips for people who want to make their lives more adventurous, and for the real outdoors fix at the end, a minute of the sounds of nature to help you relax and think about your next adventure. Enjoy. Ross, thank you so much for having me up to the Lake District. It's so much fun to be here and it's a stunning day today, like the most blue sky, gorgeous autumn day. Yeah, stunning. We had to actually cancel a fungi course at the weekend just because the weather was so bad. Oh. Uh, Was it Storm Colin or something? Yeah, yeah. Callum, Callum, yeah. Came through, yeah. So we had to cancel that, but I'm glad it's like this now. Hopefully it'll stay. So for listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself and your career? It's always sort of tricky to put it into a few words, I guess. I spend half the year teaching wilderness skills to people in the UK and overseas on expeditions, so bushcraft, survival, expedition skills. And then the other half of the year, I provide survival consultancy and health and safety for TV companies. So some of the TV shows recently, you have been working a lot with Bear Grylls. Yeah, so Bear's, um, he's a good friend and sort of I've worked with him for coming up to nine years now, you know, chatting to him about survival stuff and looking after the the crew, sort of the health and safety of the crew. When he's doing all his mad stuff, we're trying to look after a cameraman who's got a, a camera on his shoulder following bear, climbing trees or jumping off cliffs and things. Uh-huh. So keeps you on your toes, that's for sure. I bet. And how, I mean, yours is such an unusual career. How did it all start? Where did you grow up? Uh, so I was born in the States. When I was about four, moved over to an island in the Caribbean, the Cayman Islands, and just had a, a little bit of sort of a feral upbringing, I guess, as a kid. Lived right on the beach, so if I wasn't sort of playing in the bush and on the, on the beach, I was in the sea trying to spear fish and light fires and cook them on the beach. So some of my earliest memories are sort of now effectively practicing bushcraft. I was doing it as a kid. And I think that gave me my love of nature and of the outdoors and the sort of the simple skills that I needed to be comfortable out there. You came to the UK and went to school then. Yeah. Um, But then how did you, after finishing school, how did you get into this? So as a kid, I'd I'd always sort of, I guess, looking for that adventure had been drawn to the military. I'm not from a military family or anything, but I guess all all sorts of young boys run around with guns at some point and play soldiers. And I'd seen that as a way to fulfil that adventurous sort of streak within me. But... At the time, I went through school and college and started the application to join the the British military. Because I've got a dual citizenship, I've got a British and American passport, the current sort of policy from the British military was that they wouldn't allow 
me in with an American passport. Oh. So I would have to have given that up, and at the you know it's quite a valuable thing to have. So I decided to to keep hold of it and sort of have a bit of a think of you know change of career. At the same time, I went on a bushcraft course with a company up in the Lake District, so up not far from here. They're called Wood Smoke, and they run sort of a Ray Mears type week long bushcraft course. And I remember going on that. I had a sort of really pivotal moment. I enjoyed the whole course, and it was wonderful. We had a whole sort of array of Lake District weather and I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed the crafts and the, the traditional skills that we learned on the course and I remember coming back and getting picked up by my parents from Euston Station and getting stuck in traffic at like midnight in London on a really hot day and I just thought I've just come from you know the Lake District who's beautiful I was sleeping in shelters cooking over fires and now I'm stuck in traffic in London um, and I remember just thinking I need to find a way to make my job outdoors that was really pivotal actually it's really, it's a really tricky subject or industry to get into. I spent a lot of time studying, went on a few more courses, and then attended a year-long course down in Sussex with this guy called John Ryder, who was running like a, it's a national certificate of further education in bushcraft. And it was the first year it was run, and we were kind of guinea pigs on it. And I did that course, and then after that, was lucky enough to get an apprenticeship with Ray Mears and his company in Woodlaw. So I did that, and from there, sort of, managed to do all sorts of other things. How did that come about? Um, I went to see one of his talks down in Sussex. Uh, I remember it was a, a crazy drive. I didn't have a driving license, but my friend did. So we drove down in his old, sort of, what was it? This beat up old Vauxhall or something. Um, and the windscreen wipers didn't work. So I was like leaning out the window, spraying Windex on it and wiping the <laughs> scream from the out and it was just this mad drive down there and then saw the talk and at the end I queued up to have a chat to him I basically said Look, I'd love to work in the industry and he must get that you know knowing now having worked with Ray and Bear and all these people you see how many people come up to him so he must have he must have had that a lot and he just said I'll go to the back and speak to there's a couple of ladies at the back there who will be able to take your details so I went back and gave them my details and didn't think to hear anything of it and then a few months later, got uh, an email saying we're running this interview weekend. Do you want to come along and have a look? So I went along and it was just a really nice, relaxed weekend in the woods. And they just wanted to have a chat and see what what we were about. And and at the end of that, I think there were maybe 20 odd people on that. And myself and another guy sort of got offered work. Wow. It was starting off doing all the horrible jobs, uh, digging toilets and cleaning pots and pans mm-hmm. and learning how to do all the background stuff for running a course. And then sitting in on lectures and learning from the instructors there and eventually after a while teaching some lessons and that went on for a few years until running courses. I still had like for the first four or five years, even longer actually, of doing this. When I wasn't out in the woods teaching bushcraft, I was uh, washing up pots and pans, being a waiter, working in a bar, all this stuff because I wanted to travel as well and I needed money to, to sort of go and travel and explore and find other cultures that were still practicing bushcraft. So in order to do that, yeah, I, I ended up working as much as I could. That was kind of, it was never seen as a hardship at the time, I guess, because I was still moving forward in a career that I found amazing. And it was just something that I had to do, you know. It was a good, I think, seven or eight years before I was able to stop doing all those part-time jobs and make you know, bushcraft a full-time career. The big sort of changeover point for me was when I started working 
on TV shoots. The nature of the industry, TV shoots paid much better. It was at a real boom time in the industry where these survival shows were really popular. And also there were only a handful of people providing the survival consultancy and safety for these shows at the time. So it was a winning combination really and we were there right at the forefront. I worked with a really good guy who, extremely knowledgeable, very generous with his knowledge, pushed myself and another guy forward into these roles. So then, yeah, that took off and became very busy for, for several years. Where was your first TV shoot then? My first TV shoot was up in Norway in the winter, northern Norway, up inside the Arctic Circle, doing one of the shoots for Bear Grylls called Born Survivor in the UK and overseas it was Man vs Wild, where he's dropped into an environment and then shows sort of methods to get out and obviously eats the most disgusting things and does the most crazy stunts. So what was your, what was your role on that exact trip then? With all the shoots as well, we normally go into the area with director and cameraman and sound man and we just kind of look over the area in general and I start from a survival point of view, start suggesting things that Bear could do. If we see like in this situation we saw some reindeer, I think we were on snow machines doing a recce in the mountains and we saw some reindeer so I said you know potentially you could try and catch one of those and he could sleep in a snow cave and there's another guy up there who looks at all the um, rope work, all the stunts and everything. And he was saying, well, you know, if you're following, you're coming off the mountains down this way, then you'd need to find a way to get down this frozen waterfall and this is what you could do. And then when Bear turns up, he's, you know, he's obviously very knowledgeable and he heads off and often he'll do the sort of things that we've spotted on the recce and other times he'll find something else or opportunistically he'll see something. And when that's happening, when the filming, when we're filming the journey, I'm then helping like look after the crew because they can be quite challenging environments. Mm. So there you're dealing with obviously very cold temperatures, crew carrying heavy equipment over snow and near frozen waterfalls or steep edges or whatever it might be. And they're so focused on their task that they're maybe not always looking at the dangers around them. So we're a second pair of eyes just to make sure they're safe. Yeah. And just trying to keep up with Bear is, is a challenge in itself because he's, he's fit and capable and agile and will just hair off across the environment and it, it's often quite funny I think to see everyone trailing behind him like with cameras and like especially the sound guy who's got cables everywhere going through jungles is just horrendous because they're getting caught on everything and like yeah it's it's funny to watch but they're it's such a an amazing team of people that work on those shows that they're just they're so professional and talented uh, it's good it's really nice working with people like that. Where has been do you think the most extreme place that you've had to go on a TV shoot? I think the most remote I've been was out in Brazil. I was working with James Cracknell. Mm. He was doing a show following Colonel Fawcett who disappeared looking for this lost city. And we went to one of the villages that we know he had sort of traveled through um, back in the 1920s. And it was a two day trek to get to the village. If something went wrong, it would be sort of potentially quite a, a hard thing to get someone back out. And in fact, the, one of the guys I was working with out there slipped in one of the boats and ended up putting a, a fishing spear. They use big, long fishing spears with metal barbs in the end. He slipped in the boat when we hit a tree and the spear went into his hand. Oh. So rather than 
evacuating into a hospital because it wasn't serious but potentially you obviously wouldn't want to leave the spear in there or the risk of infection is quite high so we had to in these big thatch huts underneath the head torch I had to sort of give him a anaesthetic rim block around his finger get a scalpel and cut down to release the barb and and make sure it's thoroughly cleaned and then give him antibiotics for the rest of the week but if that had been anything more serious then trying to get him out would be tricky. Where's your favourite shoot been? I was in Alaska on one of the early ones and I was maybe 25, 26 and we stayed on this big fishing boat parked up in in a beautiful sort of sound in Alaska surrounded by forest and every morning we'd sit on the boat and have coffee and watch grizzly bears coming down and spent a lot of time working in the forest there then we got helicopters up into the glaciers and the mountains and and things and that was incredible just for the diversity of sort of the places we were going and in three weeks we were you know all over the place and that was pretty amazing and like I said for a 25 year old to I've had lots of times where I pinch myself and think people would pay a lot of money to do this. And you've been the safety consultant for the island with Bear Grylls for for many years. Yeah. How does your role work with that show? Myself and another guy Duncan who's a assistant director um, and location producer. We were tasked by Bear to go out and find some islands, tropical uninhabited islands that we could drop a group of everyday people off on and see how long they could survive for. So we looked all over the world and we ended up finding some islands in Panama which fitted sort of all the different aspects that we were looking for and the islands were good, they are uninhabited, they had enough food, the seas were sort of plentiful and also importantly for the production side of things there was an island nearby where they could stay and from a health and safety point of view Panama City has first-rate hospitals American standard hospitals we could get a casualty if something were to happen we could get them back to a a very good hospital in a couple of hours which Mm. is ideal because it's quite a risky show Um, and I remember having a chat to the production company before you know preparing for the first series and they said we want to give you we want you to give the cast um, some survival training. And I was like, great, I want a week with them and we're gonna do this and this and all the uses for coconuts and how to build shelters. And they said, you've got two days. I was like, oh, okay, uh, that's gonna be a bit harder. We had very little time, show them just how to use a machete, make water safe to drink, how to catch fish and some of the sort of wild edibles and a little bit of navigation and safety about the tides and not getting cut off. And that was it. And it was quite a hard shoot. So two days in Panama and the guys had just flown out from the UK. Some of them had never been overseas before. They turn up on this tiny little island and they just talked out for two days about survival stuff and health and safety and how dangerous the show is and everything else. And you can see they're just absolutely shell-shocked. And I'm sure they get to a point where information just doesn't sink in anymore. Um, and then, yeah, the next day they jump on a boat with Bear and get put on the island. Once the cast go onto the island, then myself and the rest of the safety teams, normally um, a couple of paramedics, we're based on a neighbouring island. Depending on which islands we use, it's normally about five kilometres away. So a 15-minute boat ride. And it's great for us because... You know, we're on an uninhabited desert island as well. We've got radios, the cars have radios and emergency beacons, and we basically just wait and hope that nothing goes wrong. <laughs> um, 
but we're there twenty on call sort of twenty four hours a day in case something does go wrong. Um, and we also each morning go in and do the Dropbox. So that involves taking all the fresh batteries and cards and everything. Or for the cameras. For the cameras, yeah. Um, to a location which is near their camp, but not within sight of them. So we take them normally, land on another beach, trek through the jungle carrying these big pelly cases, these big sort of plastic boxes, drop them off and then pick up all the empty batteries and all the sort of SD cards that have footage on them and then carry them back and that goes back to the production island and then they have a chance to look at all the footage. So the, the contestants are on there for, is it five weeks? Uh, it varies. So series one was four weeks um, and then in the dry season and series two, which was a male and female island separately, uh, they wanted to go six weeks and in the wet season. But the the food thing is an issue. So we noticed that people really struggled um, on that. So it was decided then to go back to between four and five weeks. And that's long enough. Like People come back after that looking very skinny. You know, they lost a lot of weight. They've been through a lot. They're covered in sandfly bites. It's, it's pretty horrific. One thing that I've really sort of come away with after working on those shows is that it's not always the person you think that's going to do really well. There was a girl called Cags and she was early 20s. Again, no outdoor experience at all. And during training, you get to see them for a couple of days and I thought, oh, I don't know if she really knows what she signed up for. I, you know, potentially the first sort of thunderstorm then she might come off. And she was just so tough. She just said, well, yeah, I'm a bit wet, I'm a bit cold, I'm a bit hungry, but I'm not going to get any worse and I'm going to stay. And everyone else wanted to leave. You know, all these hard guys who thought they could absolutely yeah. crack it. And she was just like, no, it's fine. She had a, she definitely had a core of steel. So yeah, and she just had that mindset. And fantastic. Going back to your bushcraft, and your courses that you lead in the UK. Can you um, tell me a bit more about that and what, what kind of things you teach people? I now work for a company up in the Lake District. It was the same company that I did my first course with. So they used to be called Wood Smoke and they've just recently rebranded to Wild Human. We run a whole range of sort of outdoor bushcraft courses. It varies from a weekend introduction, showing you how to light fires, cook fish over a fire, um, basic bushcraft skills and then we do a week-long one which has a bit more in-depth on the plants and the trees, their uses, woodcraft, carving, uh, cover sort of the main shelter, fire, water, food but it's all done from a not really a survival aspect, it's more how to make yourself comfortable, how to live comfortably in the natural world um, and increase your knowledge of what plants you can eat, what plants you can use for medicine what trees are good for carving, what trees are good for making fire from. So it's quite in-depth and in lots of different sort of subjects. And then we specialise as well. We run courses on tracking, using an axe, sort of a whole course on how to chop down trees and make axe handles. And, uh, and then we run an amazing course up in Scotland, a beautiful site up on the west coast of Scotland where we have a secluded beach and spend the whole week foraging off the coast. Uh, which is just unbelievable. We eat so well. What kind of things do you do you eat? Uh, so we go out fishing on the, some boats and 
catch lots of pollock and mackerel and that all gets smoked and made into a chowder. We go off collecting fungi and make a, a wild sort of fungi sauce for venison. Yeah, it's incredible. We teach people how to fish using modern fishing rods and reels, but also improvise their own fishing gear. It's a beautiful, apart from sort of the midges occasionally, or the Scottish sort of rain, it's actually, it's a really beautiful course. It's very similar to sort of the, the Raymere's bushcraft side of things. It's quite different to the survival shows that are out there at the moment. When people go on those courses with you, what's the biggest motivation? Why are they there? I think lots of people realise that they've lost sort of a connection with the natural world and for whatever reason feel that they want to reconnect. You get lots of people who live in cities and they might have realised on a, on a walk through a park in, in the city that they don't know the names of the trees. So they, they come up and want to learn just a little bit more. And people always go back, I think, with a, a better and a deeper connection. Often, you know, we really have to drag them away. At the end of a week, they feel very sort of relaxed and, and comfortable and, and are dreading heading back into a city or jumping on a train or jumping in their cars and heading down the M6. I mean, you must be away from home a lot. Yeah, um, that is one of the downsides. And I always I feel like I'm being a bit picky when I sort of complain about it. Being away is, is always hard. A couple of years ago, I was extremely busy with TV work. You know, it wouldn't be unusual to be away for 11 months of the year. That one month that I'm back is maybe two days here, a week here, and that time is purely spent unpacking, repacking, and then going again. I've spent a lot of time living out of rucksacks and North Face holdalls, and it can get quite tiring. But when you're doing such amazing things, you know, it, it still is worth it. But now I try to spend a bit more time, you know, on days like today, it's absolutely glorious. Blue sky, sunny, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than in the UK. So I really try and spend a fair bit of time back here, or even just time to do my own journeys. Because I, I found that I was so busy doing trips for other people that I wasn't able to do stuff for myself. And, and the reason I got into this was because I loved going out into wild areas and doing it, you know, for my own reasons or my own sort of self-powered journey is really important to me. I try now to spend the summers in the UK running bushcraft courses and then the winter months overseas on expeditions or TV work. And then I'll have a couple of weeks in between that sort of transition period where, you know, I'm going on new courses, I'm learning new things to keep myself sort of fresh and current and um, also try and do some personal trips as well. When you go away, what is your most valuable piece of kit? I guess for most environments it would be some kind of cutting tool. If I'm going away for, you know, into the wilderness on, a, on an expedition, having, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the UK, an axe or a knife or, you know, if I'm in the temperate regions, an axe is, I could do anything I needed to do with an axe. Um, or if you go into the tropics, into the jungle or to desert islands, then having some form of machete or uh, traditionally from Malaysia, they're called parangs. It just means that I can cut open coconuts to get water. I can make a shelter. I can make a bed to get myself off the ground. I can make a fire. And the knowledge to use that as well, obviously, is vital. And knowledge is often more important than that sort of material thing. But having the knowledge to make a sharp edge from a, a stone is useful, but it's much easier this day and age to carry a, 
a modern knife or, or machete. So that would probably be the most important thing, I think, to take. What would be, you say, the hardest moment in your career? Early on in my TV career, uh, again, working on a, a Man vs. Wild shoot, I was a 25-year-old, not massively experienced. I've been working in the bushcraft industry for probably six years, seven years at the time. And I remember having a chat to a director who's a good friend and I've worked with him lots. And he said, do you find it hard, you know, being so young and not having ever sort of been through a survival experience and coming on and being a survival consultant? Uh, And that was definitely a challenge because being considered to be quite young and inexperienced. Lots of people who in this industry now come out of the military and you know they've done an amazing service out Afghanistan or Iraq and they come in immediately with kudos and experience and that was quite hard and it's one of those very tricky things that you need to be able to experience something and you need to have that opportunity to experience something before you can gain the experience from it but it takes time to be able to to get that experience so that was hard finding my way through being able to sort of advise people who are often older than you or you know, may look at you as some young buck coming in and yeah, that was tricky. But I just, I sort of stepped back from it and decided that I knew what I was talking about and I just had to realise that in time I would gain that experience. And I have now, I'm very lucky and one of the sort of joys of this work is that I'm always learning, I'm always learning something new, I'm always experiencing new things, meeting new people, discussing new ideas, which keeps it very new and interesting for me, but also means that I'm never going to get bored, you know, I'm not going to have learnt everything, and I never call myself an expert with this sort of stuff, it's, it's always something that you're learning, it's always bigger than me. the three people who have inspired your career or your outdoors adventures? I've been inspired by so many people I think. To pick out people that inspired me before I got into this I think is how I how I approached it before I knew people in those circles and had those experiences. First off is Ray Mears. He was really the only person at the time out there doing bushcraft and out on TV and as a 14, 15 year old, he was a real inspiration and his his shows in the UK but also overseas in different environments and everything else were really eye-opening and, and he definitely put me put, like put me on the, the bushcraft path if you like. I think if it if it wasn't for him making me aware of bushcraft, then I probably would have given up my American passport and joined the military. How about your second person? Uh, second person would be Bruce Parry. Um, I remember Bruce Parry. This is this is flashback to yeah. when I was younger watching TV. Yeah. yeah, I think he really inspired a love of sort of indigenous cultures, living in their houses or wherever they stay, and eating the same food as them, and going out, doing the daily chores with them, and really immersing yourself in their way of life. And obviously, he takes it to quite an extreme with the the sort of the rituals he gets involved with and everything else. But that has always sort of stuck with me that in order to understand people and their interaction with the environment and everything else, you just have to get that dirt time and spend time with them. And so that's been, that's been a real drive of mine as well. How about your third person? Uh, third person would be David Attenborough. 
Sir David Attenborough, I think. He was quite an easy choice, actually. I think he's just an, a national treasure. Some of his early expedition work documentaries where he just heads off into incredibly remote places, really hardcore expeditions. And, and nowadays, sort of being able to show so many thousands, millions of people the wonders of the natural environment and the animals that live in it. And that all just raises so much interest. And you can't protect something you don't love. Nowadays, people are starting to be aware of the, the damage that plastics are doing in our oceans and pollution and, and everything else. And I'm a firm believer in you can't protect what you don't know. If you have an understanding of an environment, you understand its importance. I think he's, he's an absolute sort of a bastion of that. And it's just something about his way of presenting and putting across information and his knowledge and passion. And, and you can tell that he's not one of these people that is maybe very good on camera, but doesn't have the knowledge. So he gets fed knowledge, but then, you know, repeats it in front of the camera. He has all this knowledge and he is just so passionate about it. So I could sit and watch his stuff all day. I'd love to meet him actually. It'd be... I've always tried to sort of find a way to get onto some of the shoots that he works on, um, but it's never, it's never quite worked out. <laughs> In terms of advice you would give for people who would like to learn bushcraft skills or survival skills, what would be your biggest piece of advice? The bushcraft side of things, there seems to be a, you know, a lot of people, every course we run, there's at least one person who wants to do it as, as a job. And I can understand it, you know, it's, it seems like an ideal job. You get to spend time outside and teaching cool subjects and crafts and everything else. I think my one bit of advice would be not to rush it. People often seem a bit perturbed by the fact that like we run maybe a three-year apprenticeship scheme and in that first year you might not teach any courses you might just be digging toilets and like doing all the background jobs that need to be done on on a course but it's vital to make you a, a rounded instructor to be able to understand what goes into running a course and setting up a course and running it in the UK is you know one thing but a lot of those skills are transferable if you were to do a an expedition out to the jungle or uh, the desert or you know setting up a, a base camp and looking after people, understanding the value of learning with someone who can, you know, you'll, you'll be able to make a fire if you watch enough YouTube videos and practice enough, but you'd probably be able to do it quicker and more efficiently if you worked with someone who could give you a few pointers and, and change your body position and technique slightly. So I think that's, that's really important as well. And there's so many people out there. There's obviously courses you can go on, but there's so many groups of people that get together now, you know, have a shared interest in bushcraft and meet up once a month or something. And those are those are perfect. So finding a, a local group can be really helpful. Are there any um, particular places in the UK which you think are quite spectacular for for sort of going and trying trying out bushcraft or whether that's just even just wild camping or anything like that? Yeah, so I mean the lakes is stunning. But the lakes can be quite um, sort of relatively busy especially during the summer months. Now it's just starting to quieten down and you can get up into the fells and not see any other people. But Scotland, the west coast of Scotland, and is just stunning. Like it's absolutely, you know, it's wild and rugged and you could easily walk there and not see anyone else. Where, where is the best part there? Near sort of 
ascent and which is quite fun, or sort of Ullapool way up into the mountains there is stunning. Even down sort of Glencoe, a bit more accessible, if, you know, a couple of hours from Glasgow. Uh, and then the west coast, a place called Ardnamurkin, the peninsula on the west coast there, is just stunning. And the, the beaches have white sand and it's a really inspiring, wild place to be. Um, and then I used to live down in Dorset, so Dartmoor is, is beautiful and great for wild camping. What is tricky is finding sort of nice broadleaf woodland to go off and light fires and everything else that needs to be done quite responsibly and you need to make sure you have landowners permission which can be quite hard to to do sometimes so that's another benefit of either meeting up with a group of people or going on a course is that they've already found that area that you can go and practice i would also recommend people getting out and wild camping in every season uh, it's quite easy just to try and go out on nice days when the weather forecast looks good you know i don't know if you've heard of this like type one and two fun no uh so type one fun is you know beautiful like enjoy it at the time it's great fun you can live in the moment and it's brilliant and type two fun is like at the time it's just horrible it sucks and <laughs> it can be cold and wet and miserable and but afterwards you're like yeah that was amazing once you come back and had a shower and you know a cup of tea and whatever and then you look back at it and think yeah that was incredible that was really good fun but at the time you hate it so get out and have more type two fun because you learn a lot, you learn a lot about yourself. It's never as bad as it seems. That's always a, that's always sort of my philosophy on it. Where's your favourite place to, to, if you were to go in the winter wild camping, where's, where's a good spot? I love the lakes. I love getting up onto like the Fairfield Horseshoe up here. It's a really nice, you know, you can park in Ambleside and, and get up into the fells in, in an hour and you'll probably see no one else up there. And it's incredible. Or, or the Helvellyn Massive, like, walking along that whole ridge line in the winter often gets really good snow and taking a, a tent and as long as you you have a few you know like a good sleeping bag and good warm layers and a, a fairly sort of robust tent you can be completely safe and you know always let people know where you're going and when you want to come back but getting out in those sort of tougher times is is really important what would you suggest to people who want to get outdoors more and be more adventurous uh, but they're really sort of working in a city and there isn't a whole lot of time. Do you have any advice for, for them? I heard a really good philosophy that, um, that success was not about finish lines. So if people have an aim or an objective, I want to get out more, I want to go out in the winter, I want to learn bushcraft, I want to sort of light fires or whatever it might be, whatever their goal is, that isn't sort of the important part. The important part is the start line and how to make that possible. And if you aim for that, focus on the start line, then that finish line will come. Planning a really small, you know, one night adventure somewhere or going down, there's um, a few sort of campsites that are a bit more wooded, so they're not your usual farmer's field with a toilet block and everything else, but they're based within the woodlands and allow you to have a, a natural fire and finding one of those and just planning a, a weekend there. Again, it's, it's a relatively, safe environment for you to practice putting up your tent and lighting a fire and if it all goes wrong then you've got a safety network to help you out but just something like that and going out and doing it and not being afraid to to learn from mistakes like I'm still making mistakes and I think the important thing is to learn from them and try not to make them happen again. <laughs> is there one personality attribute or 
mental attitude that you need to have to be able to do what you do or to be able to be you know good at bushcraft or good at survival wow that's very interesting i think humility is really important the ability to learn from anyone regardless of their age or race or sex i remember i was in fiji once and i was just on the beach fishing and this little boy who must have been about eight years old came up and just sat next to me and then he was watching me going off and sort of cracking open little crabs for bait and as you crack open the shell like you squash the crab and then I was trying to put all these little bits of crab on a hook and he was laughing and just sat there and then after a little bit of time he just went up and picked up a crab and when you pick them up they sort of close into their shell and all sort of protect themselves and he just whistled into the opening of the shell and the crab came out and he grabbed it and then just gently sort of ease the crab out of the shell, kept it whole and managed to put it on a hook and fish. And it was amazing. And I still, now I teach people that. So having that humility to, to understand that you can, that everybody's got something to teach, I think is, is really important. And having a sense of humour, because there's always times where things go wrong. And if you can't have a bit of a laugh about it, then it's just going to get worse. Looking back at your 15-year-old self, yeah. what do you think he would think of you now? Wow. Uh, I hope, oh, 15 years old, yeah, I hope he'd be happy. I hope, you know, at 15, I couldn't have imagined that I'd be sat here now, like, talking to you and potentially sort of inspiring other people to get into a, a career in the outdoors, like teaching bushcraft and leading expeditions and things. And just looking back on the experiences that I've had, it's incredible. I'm sure there's things that I would love to have, known before they've gone wrong but I think as a 15 year old looking at me now it would be yeah I'd like to be inspiring I'd like I think it'd be that no obstacle is too much to to stop you if you've got something you know if you've got a passion for something there shouldn't be any obstacles that will stop you getting there they're always surmountable or avoidable you know it takes a bit of hard work and grit and determination it's all possible isn't it Thank you so much for talking well, to me, you. Ross. It's yeah. been so, so interesting. <laughs> um, and just such a lovely chance to get up to the Lake District and, and yeah. see where you live for only about one month a year. But anyway. I know. <laughs> yeah, but it's a nice place. Yeah, it's nice. Um, but yeah, it's been wonderful to chat. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before we get to the real outdoors fix, which is a relaxing minute to the sounds of nature, I want to say thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to it. Also, let me know your feedback about The Outdoors Fix. You can leave your comments on the website, which is theoutdoorsfix.com. You'll also find photos of Ross and his adventures, as well as other episodes. But now, time for a bit of escapism.